Margaret Macmillan is the author of Women of the Raj and the international bestsellers Nixon in China and Paris 1919, which won the 2003 Governor General's Award and several prestigious international prizes, including the Samuel Johnson. The past provost of Trinity College at the University of Toronto, she is the warden of St. Anthony's College at Oxford University. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much. I'd like to kill two birds with one stone. You've recently published two books through Penguin, The Uses and Abuses of History, and more recently... Yes. The short biography of Stephen Leacock as part of Penguin's Extraordinary Canadian series that's edited by John Ralston Salt. I'd like to, in this interview, discuss how one goes about writing history and apply your tenets of history writing to, to what you did here. Is that a small enough task for 40 minutes? That should keep us busy, I think. Okay. Do you have a, a nice five-point plan that's alive in your mind? the right way to go about writing history? No, I don't have a neat plan. I have a method, I suppose. When I decide I start on a subject, it's usually something I already know something about, so that I, I'm not starting from, from scratch. I know something of the background, and I have a sense of who the important historians are in the field. Yeah. And I start reading, and I start trying to understand what it is about the subject that I'm writing about that is important. I read what other people have written, about that person, I read biographies, I, if I'm writing about a historical moment, I read as much as I can about it. Secondary sources and media at the time, that kind of thing? Yes, I, well, I, I basically I, I try and read widely, and it's always very helpful to read what other people have already written in secondary sources, because that saves you time. You look at mm. their sources and you look at what they've looked at. But I also, and we all do, we, I go back to the original records, because mm. there are always enormous amounts of documentary records, particularly for 20th, 20th century, 19th to 20th century history. Which takes you to all sorts of interesting well, places like, like Kansas. Uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Um, it can take you to interesting places. I mean, it, it, more and more stuff is now available electronically, which means you, you, in some cases you have to go less. But for private papers, boxes of papers, those are too expensive to scan in, most of them, and so you do have to go. So for my Paris book, I went to Washington to look at records in the Library of Congress, people's papers, letters who were at the Peace Conference. I went to Princeton. I went to Edinburgh. There was a very good collection of papers. I went to the House of Lords Records Office in London. I went to Ottawa a lot because the Sir Robert Gordon papers, Canadian Prime Minister at the time, were invaluable, and he saved everything including mm -hmm. invitations, postcards, they were wonderful. Because he was on the CC list of everything that was taking place at the time? He basically was, and he was an important yeah. figure at the peace conference. I mean, yeah. He was there representing Canada, he was a member of the British Empire delegation, he was regarded as the most senior of the Commonwealth statesmen, and so he was often consulted. And he also served on a couple of very important committees. So he was, he was really in the thick of things, and as you say, he was CC'd on a lot of stuff. I also look at government documents, um, government records, um, anything, anything that seems important that will cast light. And in a way, when you're doing history, the more you read and the, more the, the multiplicity of angles you can get mm -hmm, mm -hmm. helps you to understand the story. And so you begin to accrete knowledge and you begin to get a sense of who's reliable and who isn't. You mm -hmm. begin to get a sense of, of where the difficult issues are. Who's thinking what and what their agendas are? And yes, you, you begin to get a sense of their viewpoints because when you look at the documents, you think, well, this person's saying this, that person's saying this, but you learn more about them, you learn more about the arguments behind it. And so it's a process of building up. It's, it's like building up a picture, and you just keep building it up and you keep adding details in. And you reach a point where you think, well, I've got enough to begin and I can start writing. 
And I find as I write, I then realize I need more information on a certain subject, so I, I keep researching while I'm writing. And you weigh one source against another, you weigh one type of evidence against another, and you hope that you will come up with as accurate a picture of what was going on as you can. I mean, it always has to be tested. It's, it's in a way, it's like building a court case. You're trying to get the evidence, and mm. you're trying to make sure the evidence will support what you're saying. It's funny, you know, because I've just written a piece on uh, on literary criticism. It's the same sort of idea. If you uh, you've got certain likes and dislikes, but what you what you have to do is to build your argument to back up your opinion about certain things. And it is like a like a lawyer providing evidence and then interpretation of that evidence. I think it is, and it's also because with both literary criticism and, and history, you're trying to get a sense of people who are living in a different world from you. I mean, I assume if you're, if you're writing about an author, if you're writing about Milton, for example, you probably want to know what the world he was living in was like, how people were using words, what concepts they were thinking in. And I think in history, you're trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, people will use a word in the 19th century to mean something quite different from the way we use it in the 20th century. Yeah. And you have to try and, and understand that rebuild something of, of the understanding. I read a, a quote, I think it was by Trevelyan, who talked about the best history being written by those who were able to imaginatively engage with the people that they were writing about, putting themselves into their, their positions, assuming their roles, if you will. I think that's a very good way of putting it. I mean, we can never recapture the past because it is, it's gone, and unspoken assumptions. I mean, we all live in our present day, we live with all sorts of things we don't really talk much about, but everyone assumes, and we know what we mean by certain words, and we know what we mean by certain concepts, and we know what we mean by certain categories of things. But you try and, and capture that. I've always liked to read books about completely um, different bits of the past. I mean, I, I read a fascinating book on the Byzantine world, and Byzantines thought in different ways from us and they believed there was really no barrier between the unseen supernatural world and, and the natural world. So for, for them, the world was, was filled with the things that they saw and could touch and could smell, but it was also filled with spirits. And it's a very different sort of world from the world that most of us live in, but it, it is you can't, I think, write about the person unless you try and understand how it was people were seeing the world. There's an interesting parallel there between putting yourself into the mindset of an Elizabethan audience watching Hamlet and the ghost of the father and wondering why that character or that ghost, is, is it real or is it not real? But for that audience, in all likelihood, it was real, just as real as the, the real characters. Possibly. Yes, and, and what the ghost said should have been trusted. Not trusted, but should have been treated as if it was someone actually there. No, I think you're absolutely right, whereas we see it as a dramatic device and, and probably a slightly corny one. Um, in fact, the Elizabethans, it would have been very different. I do like reading history, luckily, because I keep <laughs> doing it. But the wonderful book I, I read about the, the Roman world and how for young Roman men of noble families, patrician families, the most important thing they could do was go into politics and what was terribly important was honor. Mm. And they would die rather than get embarrassed and, and, and be, have, have their honor impugned or the honor of their family impugned. And it's, again, it's a different sort of world from like ours. Like the Japanese. Yes, mm. it is. And that's why history is so interesting, I think. One of the reasons it's so interesting is it shows us that there are other potential worlds. And what we take for granted is not necessarily the only way to do things or the only way to see things. Just turning to, uh, and I'm speaking with Margaret Macmillan, who is the author of The Uses and Abuses of History. Stephen Leacock, now, just to give you a personal anecdote, recently I was in a bookshop and I picked up an old book called How to Write by Stephen Leacock. 
I was in Cape Town, so I was sort of pleased to see a Canadian author's work down there. And I started to read it. I came across a sentence that said something like, some people like to use long words to make themselves look more intelligent, like black people or like colored people. And then, funnily enough, in the next sentence, he used quite a lengthy word that could have been substituted for a much simpler Anglo-Saxon one. But he's a man of his times, just like Rhodes may have been. But it sure took the it took the shine off. There are words that people use then that you simply wouldn't use now. And in one of his one of his writings, and I forget where he talks about niggers, and you see it, and it shocks you, because it's a word which we've come to associate rightly with a whole racist approach to people of colour, and, and when it's used we know it's an insult. But for, in Leacock's time it was not so much an insult, it was no. just an epithet. Yeah. But it does, it, it shocks you. I mean, he uses the word race, where in fact we would probably, again, it, it shocks us because it sounds to us as, as, as if he's seeing the world divided into different races, and it's a racist way of seeing humanity. But a lot of people in Leacock's own time, including Leacock himself, would use race when we would now use nation mm. or ethnic group. But again, it gives us a jolt. Well, this particularly gave me a jolt because, it, number one, it was racist or stereotyping. But number two, it just didn't seem accurate to me. Odd and contrived. I, I just wonder, you're writing a book here called Extraordinary Canadians, and we're wanting to celebrate the, all of the positive things about this man. But you do, at the beginning of the book say, and I quote you, his uh, retrograde and public views on women, his belief that some races were superior to others, all made him out of step with the new multi-ethnic Canada that was emerging in the second half of the 20th century. However, we should remember him. His work reminds us of ourselves as we were, of a Canada of small towns and farms, and where when people, especially English speakers, talked of home, they did not mean this country. You have to take him as he was. As I see it, the purpose of writing a biography and, and in this series, Extraordinary Canadians, is not to write hagiographies. We're not finding flawless heroes and heroines here. There is we're, no such thing. There is think. no such thing. And we're looking at people who were of their times, and I think we have to understand that. It doesn't excuse his views, but we have to understand that they, they, were, well, they were, in fact, quite common views in his time. But we look at him because he was an influential person and he helped to shape Canada and we don't have to agree with everything he said. But if we're looking at extraordinary Canadians, then I think he was one. He was a public intellectual at a time when we had very few such people. He engaged in the great debates about debates we still have. What is Canada? What does it mean to be Canadian? Where are we going? What should we be doing in the world? All these sorts of things. And so he was an influential and important figure. And his humor, I think, yeah, is very much, much it, it, part of, of the development of a Canadian, distinctively, I think, Canadian sense of humor. It was funny too, I just interviewed Nino Ricci about uh, Pierre Trudeau and in a similar way he is showing the world that perhaps we're not a bunch of boring dull people, we're funny and intelligent and... Well I think yes, I think yeah. I think part of the purpose of the series was, was to not celebrate ourselves, perhaps that's, that sounds a bit too smug and self-congratulatory, but to look at ourselves and say look you know we have produced, we're a small people, you know it's not, there are not that many Canadians no, in the world. No. We're not a big nation. I mean, big geographically, but small otherwise. But, you know, we've, we've done some interesting things in our times. 
And there are people who have contributed to, to making us what we are. And it's worth looking at these people. You know, if we want to understand ourselves, one of the ways of doing it is looking at our own past through individuals who, who were important features of that past. And there are other ways of understanding ourselves as well, but it's one of the ways. So um, we're doing this to, what, feel proud of who we are, boosting our self-esteem? Is this one of the reasons? Well, I suppose it might be one of the reasons. I, I mean, I don't think it's, it's necessarily the best reason for doing this. I mean, I think it's, it's curiosity, quite frankly. Um, how did Canada become Canada? How did Canadians become Canadians? Um, who are we? And what is it about us? I mean, we have a society which has certain features. How did that society develop? And I don't, I've always been very leery of looking back and saying, here are the great heroes and heroines who mm -hmm. strode across the world, you know, like Colossus and, and so on. I, I don't like that sort of thing. And I don't think, there is, a, there is a tendency among Canadians to be rather smug and say, you know, we really are nicer than anyone else, aren't we? You know, we do good, we're, we're so nice in the world. You know, I, I don't think that. I mean, we're, not, we're certainly not worse than other people, and in many ways I think we are, you know, I think we should be proud we have a stable and, and successful society with civic mm. institutions. I mean, yeah, I know it's a great place to live, but yeah. perhaps a bit boring compared to other places. Well, I if by boring you mean we haven't had a civil war, we haven't had revolutions, um, which, you know, can cause such misery. We haven't had the need for revolutions. We've managed to contain our arguments. We've managed to negotiate a continuance of Canada. You know, we've had separatists. We're a model for the world, well, I think theoretically. We, well, I think we are in many ways a model for a world. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've, we've managed to build institutions that are strong enough but flexible enough to incorporate a great many different groups, mm -hmm. ethnicities, um, ways of looking at the world, and we've managed to avoid open conflict. And no, I think we should be very proud of that. Yeah. And it's not a violent society. No, it is not. Yeah. We're funny, though, aren't we? I mean, it's not a violent society, but we, we, our national sport, or the one which is really our national sport, is one of the fastest and most violent games in the world. You know, maybe that's our safety valve. Let's get back to a, a, a theory that you have, or you express here, about history. If the study of history does nothing more than teach us humility and skepticism, then it has done something useful. We must continue to examine our assumptions and those of others and ask, where's the evidence or is there another explanation? We should be wary of grand claims in history's name or those who claim to have uncovered the truth once and for all. In the end, my only advice is to use it, enjoy it, but always handle history with care. That was my conclusion, I guess. It's, it's not a very exciting one, but I think history is... I do it because I'm fascinated by it and I enjoy it. But I think it's a subject that a lot of people look to, hoping they'll find answers, hoping they'll find lessons, hoping they'll find predictions about the future. Mm, patterns. Patterns. Yeah. And that, I think, can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. I think the best thing history can do, and, and knowing history and the training in history can do, is, is, is teach you how to ask good questions. Mm -hmm. and, and keep pushing. You know, if, if your leaders of any sort, political business, whatever, say, you know, this is the way things are, you know, this is what we have to do, it's quite clear-cut. That's the point which you say, well, is it? Ideally, is citizens should follow the example of good historians in their own relationship with their leaders. I think so. I mean, I think it's, it's what you get when you, when, you do, when you train as an historian is, is I think, both an ability to, to weigh evidence and, and test things against each other. Mm -hmm. But I think what you also get is this ability to ask questions and to look for factors which may not be explicit. You know, we should do this, you know, or this, this course of action is a good one. Well, what a historian would say is, 
have we taken all the important factors into account? Have we looked at the economic factors? Are there social factors here? Is, is there a religious or ideological component we should be considering? Are there people who are going to resist this particular course of action? How strong will their resistance be? The ability to keep asking questions, I think, is yeah. useful. Well, and also, too, to be able to spot when someone's trying to use history in a way that's, that's not, quote, objective. Well, I, my suspicions go up whenever someone says, history teaches us that we must do this mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. And I think history doesn't teach us anything. What history shows us is that may, there may be various outcomes of certain courses of action. And I think what history sh makes us aware of, or should make us aware of, is the possibilities that a course of action has several possible outcomes, and we should be aware of those. And we should be careful when we make decisions, and we should try and weigh the different possibilities against each other. So I, I think, no, I, I think you're right. I think when people say, as they did, the Americans and the British did in the lead up to the invasion and occupation of Iraq, history teaches us that you must deal with dictators like Saddam Hussein in such and such a way, you must well, stop and, them. And early on, uh, like the Munich, you know, but the sooner we get to them, the better. Yeah, the point is, I mean, really, I think, and, and they, I think there's some people now admit it, they had got to him. They had successfully contained him which is an analogy mm -hmm. not from the 1930s but from the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Saddam Hussein had been shorn of his ability to destabilize the Middle East. I mean, basically he could make his, the life of his own people miserable. He mm -hmm. certainly was, was doing that and more. But his, his ability to threaten his neighbors and to threaten the stability of the Middle East and weapons Western oil supplies was, was, was gone. Despite so, the fact that they used weapons of mass destruction as the rationale or well, for going in there. Yeah. But the UN was telling them that they weren't there. And he had no air force left. Allied planes, since the beginning of, of the 1990s, since the first Gulf War, had been overflying his airspace with impunity. So what could he do? He didn't have an air force. He didn't have his, his military had lost its capacity to strike outside Iraq. And so I think to say that it was just like Hitler and Mussolini was rubbish. But it was used as one of the, again, rationale. It was used as a rationale, and I suspect believed by, by key members of the Bush administration. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've read that Paul Wolfowitz in the, in the Defense Department was saying, kept saying, it's just like the 1930s yeah. again, mm -hmm. we have to do it. And I, you know, he's an intelligent man, so I don't mm -hmm. think he would be lying about it. I think he really did feel it very, mm -hmm. very strongly. But, you know, my view is, is that it wasn't like the 1930s. I mean, the reason why Hitler was such a menace and why people felt perhaps wrongly that they ought to try and appease him was because he was sitting on top of the most powerful country in Europe. Big manufacturing giant, weren't they, at that point? They were huge, and, mm -hmm. and they, they had a strong military tradition, mm -hmm. and they also geographically sat right at the heart of Europe. I mean, Saddam Hussein, yes, Iraq was, was at the heart of the Middle East, but he didn't have the capacity, anything like the capacity that Hitler had. History is written by the victors. So people say, and I'm not sure it is actually. I, th I think especially, you know, if you look at the late 20th century, a lot of the history that has been written has been written about those who are marginalized, dispossessed, have been unfairly treated. Mm. And that's not Victor's history. Mm. In fact, I think good historians will, will look at history and not write a triumphalist point of view. In a democracy, yes, but obviously not in uh, less democratic regimes. No, in less democratic regimes, the histories that get written tend to be histories that those in authority want written. And um, Stalin would have wiped out Trotsky. Trotsky. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, Stalin. I think dictators such as Stalin are often very conscious of the power of history because what history shows is that there were alternative paths, and of course mm. they don't want that to be shown. They want to be shown as the culmination of a successful, triumphal, you know, march through through history. Which is what's so powerful about 1984, the novel. Yeah. Well, 1984. All oh, that was absolutely right. That 
totalitarian regimes will try and change yeah. the past. And you know, that, there's that Russian joke, our past keeps changing. And it, it did. Yeah. No, Stalin was, was incredible. I mean, all men that mention of Trotsky, who had contributed so much to the Bolshevik mm -hmm. victory, was wiped out. Yeah. He was airbrushed out of the photographs. His works were banned. I mean, you would have thought that Stalin did it on his own pretty well, which he didn't. I'm speaking with uh, Margaret Macmillan, who has most recently published a uh, biography of Stephen Leacock uh, as part of the Extraordinary Canadians series. So you, you acknowledge his shortcomings, or his, him being a, a man of his times. And you, we started off by talking about how you gathered all sorts of evidence in much the same way that a lawyer might. What did you do at that point, then? You did as, as much reading as you felt was required. Yes, I read quite a bit about him, and I, I read him, of course, mm. and he wrote an immense amount. I mean, he, he, he's remembered now for his humor, but he wrote probably more serious things. Including works about how humor works itself. Yes, which are not funny and boring. <laughs> um, and the book you mentioned earlier, How to Write, which is, which is I think, you know, he dashed it off, and I think it's pretty awful, actually. But he wrote a history of Montreal, he wrote a history mm. of Canada. And he, he airbrushed out the French and the Jews. We just didn't pay any attention to them. In his history of Canada, he talked about the sort of happy habitants, um, you know, in their fields, you know, going to church and singing away sort of happy songs. But he really didn't, I think, deal properly with, with the French presence in Canada. In Montreal, he just he barely mentions the French, and you know, the Irish and the Jews don't figure at all. I mean, it's very much a sort of Anglo history of Montreal. No, I mean, I don't think his history lasts, although there were good, you know, good passages in it. And I don't think most of his serious writing lasts, but his humor does. Um, Which is ironic because I think he's just sort of did that as an aside, or is there's that not correct? Well, I think he thought his humor was was fun, and it made money. He lived in quite an you know opulent way, so I think he needed the money. But I think he probably took his serious writing more seriously. But that's that's often the case. You don't have an idea of how posterity is going to treat your. Your work. Yeah. No, I don't think you do, and, and um, I think you know his, his serious work is pretty much forgotten now, and, and I think rightly so. So you've done your reading, you've read him, you've read the secondary sources. I read a whole lot of his letters. There's a wonderful edition of his letters which David Staines did, which is you know, a crucial sort of thing. It meant I didn't have to go and look at the original letters. It's, they've been very, very well edited indeed. So I used those. I talked to people who'd known him, but... There was a lot I couldn't find out about him, and that's the difficulties of doing biography. I mean, yeah. he didn't leave that many personal papers. Yeah, he didn't talk much about his feelings. He didn't oh. talk much about his feelings. I mean, he had a wife who, whom he s seems to have loved very much indeed. No letters between them have survived or have been found, as far as I know. Which is the way it should be, no. don't you think? Well, he was a very pri he was a very private person. Yeah. He was he was Victorian. And he was a gentleman. And you didn't talk about your feelings, yeah. and you, you know, when fate did something awful to you, which it did, I mean, his wife died quite young mm. of cancer, you sort of took it on the chin and didn't much talk about it. But it's, it's interesting, he didn't go back, they had, they had a summer house near Aurelia, which yeah. he, he loved, and they spent every summer there. There's a lovely uh, study on top of a boathouse. Yes, and he, he loved it, and, and after his wife died, he didn't go back for two summers, which, which says to me something. But you, you can't find out much about his, his inner feelings, but some of it comes out in his writing. I mean, in, occasionally he would refer to husbands who'd lost their wives and didn't appreciate them enough, and I think those are hints about what he felt. So you, you've got the public record, which is typically all that a historian has to go on, yeah. Yeah. and then they, you've got your intuition. Yes, and, and I think 
what I think you have to be very careful to do, I've never done a biography before, but I've done biographical sketches of people in, in mm -hmm. my other books. But I think what you have to be careful to do is, is not speculate too much, not go beyond what the record will bear. I don't like the sorts of biographies of history which say he must have felt depressed that morning mm -hmm. and he must have felt happy um, the following day. We don't know. And I think you, you can't do more than the record allows you to do. And, and so what I did, my editors at Penguin said, can't, I said rightly, can't you say more about his, his personal life, about his relationship with his wife and about his troubled relationship with his son? And, and I said, I really can't. But what I did say was why, I, I think I en ended up putting in the book why I couldn't say more. And I think you have to do that. But I, I think it's, it's bad history and I think bad biography if you, if you push beyond what you can possibly know. Yeah, wasn't it interesting, just recently, the uh, granddaughter of Lucy Maud Montgomery came out to suggest that, that she may have committed suicide. There was something that came out that made it clear that she suffered from fairly severe depression. She did, yeah. and, and this may have been known in the family but simply not discussed, which I think perhaps adds to our, our understanding of Lucy Maud Montgomery, and we may now look at her books in a slightly different way. You know, mm. that Anne of Green Gables has a happy ending for this lonely an isolated orphan, but maybe she didn't feel she'd had such a happy ending, and then maybe she was projecting, who knows, but you know, maybe she was projecting into Anne of Green Gables the story as she wishes it had gone for herself. I think it's always difficult, biography, I mean, how intrusive are you, and if there is a full record about people's you know, troubled lives, sex lives, and so on, should you put it all in the book? And I, I suppose you should when it adds to your understanding of the character. Uh, I'm just reading a, a marvelous biography of Edith Wharton at the moment. Hermione, Hermione Lees, yeah. and, and I think she does it very well because Edith Wharton destroyed a lot of her papers, but she left quite a bit, and it's clear you know, that she didn't have a happy relationship with her husband, and, and it, I think, does affect her writing. You know, her writing has a very dark side, and, and I think her own personal life may have, have contributed to that, her dark approach to her writing. It's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, you look at uh, James Joyce, I think he was quite jealous. Uh, his wife may or may not have had, uh, had an affair. He, he did. But cuckolding is, is such a central theme of Ulysses. But how does that add, I wonder, to our appreciation for the film? And that's the age-old question, is yeah. does knowing about what happened in the life of the author have any impact on the actual text itself or understanding of it or should it? Well, I think you have to show that it does. And if you don't, it's just prurient gossip. You know, there was a very bad biography of Maria Callas by the woman who's, it, it was Adriana Stasinopoulos, I think at the time. She's now Adriana Huffington and runs the Huffington Post. The biography, I thought, was really hopeless because it talked about Maria Callas's affairs, her sex life, her unhappy affair with Anassas. Doesn't talk about her singing. Now, why do we remember Maria <laughs> Callas? I mean, you know, it's because she was a wonderful singer. I'm sure singer. it was a bestseller, though. Oh, I think it did very yeah, well. Yeah. And there was another biography, I can't remember who it was by, of Picasso, which doesn't really talk yes. about the painting. Yeah, just uh, all the women who lives she ruined, yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's just gossip. That's People yeah. magazine, yeah. it seems to me. Which is of most interest to, m to many, many people. Yeah, I'm afraid yeah. it is. But, you know, I don't think that, to me, no. is, is a good biography. Okay, so you've overlaid your intuition on top of everything that you've read without going too far, without speculating too much. I, th I yeah, I hope so. Th that's your method of writing history. I think so. I'm not a creative writer like a fiction writer, but at some point there is an act, of, you, there is an element of, of creation. I mean, you're, you're giving your picture mm -hmm. of it. And, and you're putting in your biases, even though you may try yeah. hard not to. Of course I am, and, and um, the fact that I'm a woman, a Canadian... Who's grown up in a peaceful 
stable environment. That makes me perhaps appreciate people who contribute to stability rather than those who disrupt it. I mean, I don't find the Napoleons of the world admirable characters. Um, I find them dreadful because they, they turn things upside down. They didn't care how many lives got lost. I suppose also it helps, I think, being a Canadian when you're looking at great international events because I don't have any feelings about them. You know, I, I, when I wrote the Paris Peace Conference book, I wasn't French, I wasn't German, yeah. I wasn't British. No vested interest. No, no, I hope no vested interest. You yeah. know, Woodrow Wilson, I didn't care whether he was a hero or not. I mean, I think mm. being a Canadian, writing about non-Canadian subjects gives you a certain detachment. I think that's one of the best things about being Canadian is that you don't have to be overtly patriotic. No, and I think yeah. it's a very healthy thing. Mm. And I think even when I have written about Canada, I mean, I, I've written the Stephen Leacock book and I've done articles on various aspects of, of Canadian history in my time, I'd like to think that we don't have to write about some glorious triumph and, and you know the great moments of, of the Canadian past. I think we, 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 don't, we aren't that sort of people, I don't think. Speaking of our kind of people, one of the things that Canada actually exports is humor. Stephen Leacock, yes, but look at Dan Aykroyd and Jim Carrey and Mike Myers yeah. and John Candy. Yes. No, we, we have a long and rich tradition of comics and people who people who make comic films and the Reitman brothers and you don't have to like them, uh, isn't it? This is the Reitman brothers, isn't it? Who did Ghostbusters? Ghostbusters and yes. Yeah, so. No, I think there is a particularly Canadian kind of humor. I mean, American humor tends to be more savage. I mean, I think you compare Mark Twain and, and Stephen Leacock. Mark Twain is is in a way funnier, but there's a real ed not funnier, but there's a real edge to it, you know. And and it's it's quite savage. I mean, there's a very funny story which Leacock disapproved of. Um, and wrote about it in one of his books on humor, where Mark Twain has a bunch of congressmen get stuck on a train in a snowstorm, and they run out of food, and they end up eating each other, but they do it all by congressional procedures and votes, <laughs> and it's actually extremely funny. <laughs> and Mark Twain said, you know, it's, it's a pity that some such a great humorist wrote such a, such a dreadful piece of work. Stephen Leacock said that. Stephen Leacock, yeah. Yeah, sorry, Stephen yeah. Leacock. Now, Stephen Leacock <laughs> really disapproved of it. It's funny, though. I mean, that goes back to Swift's uh, modest... Uh, Modest proposal. Proposal, yeah. yeah. Well, it's very funny. Leacock wrote two books on humor, both of which are absolutely, uh, you know, deadly dull. And he did say, you know, humor is getting nicer and it's getting lighter. But he, he doesn't talk about people like Swift and mm. Voltaire. He obviously didn't consider them. Or he just found them uncomfortable. He didn't. He didn't want to consider them as humorous. Just because their knives were too sharp and they went to topics that he felt weren't appropriate. He, he had a very silly theory, really. I mean, the Victorians believed in progress, a lot of them did, you know, that things were getting better in all fields of, of human activity and endeavor. And Leacock tried to fit humor into this, and he said, you know, Greek humor was awful, it was very broad, it was slipping on banana peels, sort of caveman humor, Romans was pretty awful, a couple of high points in the Middle Ages. Generally, humor has slowly got better, and now in the 19th and 20th century, we finally have a nice, genteel, kindly sense of humor. It's, mm. it's nonsense. Yeah, because hu humor that is probably the most uh, powerful is the kind of humor that hits at the most painful subjects, typically. Yes, and sends them up. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why humor is so subversive, because it's pointing to the follies and pomposities of people, um, often our leaders. And it's a game mm -hmm. why, why, why leaders don't like jokes often. Well, and that's why leaders often will sue people who make jokes. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, humor is a very good way of, of undermining people. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's really, uh, someone gave me a collection of jokes from the old Soviet, Soviet Union, mm -hmm. and they were wonderful. I mean, they mm -hmm. have the most wonderful commentary 
mm. on the follies of that system in the Soviet Union. And the authorities didn't like them at all, but they couldn't put a stop to it. It was very difficult to put a stop to. Well, that's largely because it's word of mouth. You can often tell jokes one-on-one. You know, you don't have to tell them in front of a huge audience. They spread like... They do. Wildfire. Yeah. You know, yeah. And you think of all the jokes about George Bush Jr. So, in a sense, even though he's being remembered for his humor, you're suggesting that he didn't really have a good handle on the whole concept of it. No, not when he tried to write, write about it in a theoretical yeah, way. Yeah. And I don't think he understood his own humor. I mean, he mm. said, you know, I like kindly, gentle humor, which isn't unkind to anyone. Mm. But you read some of his stuff, it's, it's pretty sharp. You know, again, yeah. in a very Canadian way. It's not obscene, it's not vulgar, it's not <laughs> savage. Yeah. But he, he puts the rapier in pretty nicely. Yeah, and of course he's most remembered through a film that the NFB made about the going to the bank, wasn't that? My uh, financial career. Yeah. 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 And it's you know, it's something we're all afraid of. We go into these great big institutions and we don't yeah. want to look like fools and we're terrified we're going to. Well, you yeah. know, that's that's partly what it's about. And look at what look at look who the fools are if we look to at today's catastrophe. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No no well Leacock had some wonderful things. He he wrote some sketches which I'd never read before and I really enjoyed reading them called Arcadian Adventures Among the Idle Rich, which he published as a book, and they linked sketches. And there are all these plutocrats sitting in the Grand Mausoleum Club talking about, you know, the world and investment, and oh no, he'd, he'd be having a field day today. Wish that we had a, a leacock today. Yes, I know. I wonder, well, we, have, we, we do have, as you say, we have Rick Mercer, yeah. who seems to me pretty good at sending people up. We had, of course, the late lamented Mordecai Richler, who was wonderful at that. I don't know, there must be some young writers coming along who can do who can do this. There's a very funny book I read last year. What is it called? I wish I could remember the author's name. Assumed by a series of accidents, Canada gets a king. And it takes on a lot of our sacred cars. Oh, yeah. Okay. That sounds king John. King John of Canada. Okay, yeah. And I'm ashamed to say I can't remember the author's name at the moment, but it's it's... Recommend it? I would recommend yeah. it, and I hope he writes another one because he's he's very good at sort of skewering some of the things we take very seriously. Would you say then that uh, just in, in closing, would you say that that's Leacock's legacy? I think it is. I think he contributed to a type of Canadian humour. People who came after him, like Robertson Davies and Mordecai Richler, read him and were, I think, were influenced by him. He also wrote about us, and he made us, I think, interesting to ourselves which as you're developing as a nation is, is important. You know, he held up a mirror to ourselves and also made up people, other people outside Canada take an interest in Canada. I mean, his writing was very popular in the United States and England. Yes, surprisingly so, oh, yeah, really. He was internationally known. Would you say he was, was he the best known Canadian of his time? I think he may have been. My mother, who was a girl in England in the 1920s and 30s, said she knew two Canadian writers, mm. and one was Stephen Leacock and the other was Mazet de la Roche. Those were the two that she knew, and she said, you know, we'd wait for the next book of Leacock humour to come out. And uh, yeah, the, of course there's Lucy Maud Montgomery as well. Yeah, she's a bit later, isn't she? When was Anna Green Gable? Uh, was it? No, 1910, 1910. about, I think. Yes, no, I think she was, she was known, and there were yeah. a couple of others. Yeah. And later on, Thomas B. Costain. But um, I think yeah. Leacock was, was, he was someone that people identified with Canada. Anyway, it was fun to do. Have you said everything about how to write history? Or is there, is there something that oh. hasn't been said? There's always something to be said about <laughs> how to write history. I guess the other thing that I would say, and, and in this I think I disagree with some of my colleagues, is that it's very important for us to write clearly. I see history as something that's not just assembling the data, I see it as a creative process. And I think it's important for us to reach out beyond the historical profession and, and write in ways that the general interested public 
can read and appreciate. Well, thank you very much for doing just that. Margaret Millen is the author of The Uses and Abuses of History, Women of the Raj, and the international bestsellers Nixon in China and Paris 1919. Thanks again. Thank you.